this morning's session. A body, rivalries, alliances, secrets, lies, trust, and crime. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the start of your weekend and you've chosen to come here and talk about crime and listen about crime. And I think that's what you want. So I'm delighted that you've come. Uh, and I'm going to be introducing and bringing on the stage in just a second our fantastic author, Ian Rankin, who's known to all of you. And we're going to be talking about his amazing new book, In a House of Lies. Um, now, Ian is known to all of you, I'm sure, but for the uninitiated, let's just uh, make sure we, we get on the same page about Ian. Ian is the multi-million copy, award-winning bestseller, uh, best-selling author of over 30 novels. He's been translated to over 30 languages, and he's been the recipient of a number of awards in the UK, uh, four Crime Writers Association uh, Dagger Awards, and the recipient of the Diamond Dagger, the most prestigious UK award. He's also been the recipient of US um, accolades and, crucially, France, Germany, and Denmark, all of the leading crime uh, awards in those countries. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we've got uh, a long session ahead of us and a fun session. Please put your hands together and join me in welcoming Mr. Ian Rankin. So, Ian, as you said, a body. You uh, get us started in, uh, in, in A House of Lies um, pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I had an agent a long time ago in the US who said, Ian, the reason, one reason your books don't do as well in the US as they could is that sometimes nobody dies until page 100. Uh, he said American audiences like it if people die on page one and uh, get, you know, get the story, get the motor going. Um, and that... You know, it just happened that the idea I got for the, for the story, that image jumped into my head of some children playing in the woods and finding a body. So um, we start with a body. Yeah, and the pace, the pace picks up from, from then pretty quickly, but your, your lovely character, Rebus, you know, maybe his pace isn't quite as it used to be. <laughs> He's gone from pace to pacemaker almost, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, two mistakes I made in the series. One was making him too old in book one. Uh, and the second was deciding that he would live more or less in real time. And he's retired twice in the course of the series. Um, the first time he retired at the end of Exit Music, which was book 17, was because a cop that I knew in Edinburgh phoned me up and said, look, how old is Rebus? And I said, I don't know, 58, 59, why? He said, he's got to retire at 60. And I said, well, surely not. The UK retirement age for men is 65. He went, not if you're a cop. Uh, 55 if you're in uniform, 60 for CID detectives. So I said to my publisher, I'm sorry, but Rebus has to retire. End of the next book. And he said, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> they said, nobody's noticed that P.D. James's Adam Dalgleish is 102. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know. But I said, no, look, the series now has this kind of patina of realism. Real events are, are described and referenced throughout. I mean, in this book, there's a kind of reference to Brexit. How can that happen? How can the world be moving on if the detective is preserved in aspic? So he did retire. And then I just found a way to bring him back, working as a civilian on cold cases, and then he retired again. And so now, yeah, he's, he's now got health issues. And that's my wife's fault. Is she in the audience? She said she might try and come. But um, she, uh, she said to me one day, uh, Rebus has had a really easy ride health-wise. Um, 
he, he drinks, he smokes, he eats fried food, he takes no exercise, surely his health's got to catch up with him. And she introduced me to a friend of hers who was a, a doctor, a GP, and we sat down and discussed what horrible, terrible things could be happening to Rebus uh, if he was a, a real person. And we decided on COPD. I decided on COPD, it used to be called uh, emphysema, because it's got the word cop in it. And uh, I quite like the idea of Rebus having a, a disease that actually includes the word cop. But also it's manageable in inverted commas. So it's something that makes him realise he's not superhuman, that he, he's not going to live forever. Um, but uh, he, if he makes some lifestyle choices and changes, he will have a longer life. Which we hope to have, because it's going to mean the continuation of this amazing series. But yeah, you know, uh, midway through the book, you've got this phrase, which is um, managed decline. And it was a phrase that stuck with Rebus. So um, we hope you continue to manage it incredibly well. Um, <laughs> well, that was, as a guy I know who's got COPD, he's a writer, he lives in England, and I'd phoned up originally when I gave Rebus COPD just to ask him a few questions. Um, and then for this book, I thought I'd better phone him again. Um, and he, he used that phrase, managed decline. Um, and I thought it's a really interesting one, and I'd scribbled it down, uh, and it just stuck with me. The other thing he said was, does Reba still live in a tenement? I went, yeah. He said, what, two stories up? I went, yeah. He said, he's screwed. You know, he really, he, uh, he, he'll be talking about moving into a bungalow or a ground floor apartment. So in this book, again, he's having to wrestle with the notion of having to leave his apartment he's lived in, you know, for, since the series began, and move in somewhere like Malcolm Fox lives. Malcolm Fox, Reba's one-time nemesis, internal affairs cop, lives in a bungalow, so Rebus is determined he ain't going to live like Malcolm Fox. Well, we'll talk a little bit about moving houses later, um, but not right now. We'll talk um, probably about nemesis and rivalries. So we talked about Malcolm, you're, you're mentioning Rebus, and look, rivalries and alliances are just intertwined and webbed through, through this book. And you know, what's coming out is information that goes back not just years but into previous decades, right, about all of these, this tangled web. Yeah, I, I love books that manage to play the past off against the present and the present off against the past. You can say a lot about a country, about a society, from the changes that have taken place. I can say a lot about policing, changes that have taken place in the methods, the methodology, the science that's available to the police nowadays and to forensics and everybody else. Um, and, and I just like the idea that people may think they got away with something in the past, um, but uh, they ain't. You know, the, the truth and, and justice are going to come after them in some form or another. Um, so I love that. And, I mean, this story began with um, a true story. My wife and I were on vacation last January in St. Lucia. Very nice. Um, but I'd taken this folder with me of scraps of paper, ideas, things I'd clipped from newspapers and magazines because I had a June deadline for this book. This was January. June deadline, and I was getting a little bit panicky, which is good, because the adrenaline gets going, and that's when the ideas start to form. And there was this one little story that I'd clipped from a magazine in the UK called Private Eye, a satirical magazine, but it also does hard news as well, and investigative journalism, and it was about a private detective in London 30 years ago who was investigating alleged links between senior police officers and organised crime, and he was found hacked to death in a pub car park in south-east London. And, I, you know, it just got the cogs working. It was something about that story that just got the cogs working. And uh, I got the notion of this, this guy's body being found in his car after a period of time. I decided on 10 years rather than 30 years. Um, but he's been missing for 10 years. Now suddenly his body turns up, found by some kids. 
And then I thought, well, at that point in the story, I mean, that was all I had. And at that point, I thought, this could be the kid's story. This could be, if anybody's seen Stand By Me, the film, this could be a kind of Stand By Me type book. Um, and, then, and then I thought, well, actually, no, there's going to be a murder inquiry because the body is obviously didn't commit suicide. It's not natural causes. Um, okay, so Siobhan Clark, Rebus's one-time colleague, will be in this book. Then I thought, yeah, but they will also be investigating the missing persons case from 10 years ago and why was his body not found then? Or, you know, <clears throat> was there collusion? Because uh, this guy had been investigating dodgy business people. Um, <clears throat> was there just um, stupidity, shortcuts taken, covering up, etc., etc.? And the title in A House of Lies came to me quite quickly because the police headquarters in Edinburgh used to be known as the Big House. So the House of Lies is partly the lies that the police officers were telling at the time, um, and partly it's a dysfunctional family. It's a kind of another thread, another narrative in the book. There's a dysfunctional family, and in that house, many lies are being told. I think what you're going to relate to in this book is, um, is a number of things. And what I kind of related to, it's, it's the things that you maybe don't want to admit or you, you keep quiet, and secrets and lies. Mm. In. Why do you think secrets and lies? You know, you read it on a book and you, you kind of think, no, I'm whiter than white. And then you start thinking, did I tell the truth about this? So the human psyche... And We've all got that feeling, haven't we? If, if, you're, if a police officer comes to your door, you immediately feel guilty. You think, well, I've done something and, and I'm not surprised they finally caught up with me. You know, um, it's that, not that session, it, that, No, but, you know, that time I parked on a double yellow line, that time I didn't pay for that thing, that, you know, that time I was a teenager and I shoplifted a record from a record shop in Kirkcaldy. You just, you know, all these things come flying at you. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the police officers turned up because there's been a burglary three streets away and they're just looking for information. Uh, but by then you've admitted to everything you've ever done in your life. And, um, no, we all do that. There's a kind of face we present to the world. And, uh, and cities and cultures and countries and societies do it as well. You know, you, you visit Edinburgh and you think, what a lovely city. It's got all this history and tradition and culture and it's very civilised. Um, and you scratch the surface and you find it's got social problems, it's got crime, um, it's, got, it's had a history of things being covered up, quite a dark history in Edinburgh's case. And originally, I mean, I started writing books about Edinburgh. It, they didn't need to be crime novels. But I thought a detective, well, early on I discovered that a detective is a very good way of looking at a society because they have an access all areas pass. They can be talking to the bureaucrats and the business people, the CEOs, one minute, and the next minute the dispossessed, disenfranchised. Um, and so that one character, Rebus, allowed me to explore Edinburgh from top to bottom, which was what I originally wanted to do. And then using Edinburgh as a microcosm for Scotland as a whole and maybe for Western society as a whole, because the, the issues that we have in Edinburgh are very similar to issues you have in other countries. Um, so, you know, some, you start with something very small, something very particular, and then the ripples just, just keep pushing out. And it's always intriguing to me. Sometimes I write about a specific crime that has maybe happened in or around Edinburgh, and then people say, oh, yeah, we had something similar. We had the same issue here in Australia, in Canada, um, in Iceland, you know. And you go, well, I thought I was talking about something very particular, but in fact I was talking about something that's a universal. And crime fiction does deal with universals. It deals with big moral questions. Um, similar to the folk tale and the fairy tale. Um, it deals with, you know, people you think are your friends but are actually wolves in disguise. Um, can you trust anybody? Can you trust people who present themselves to you as friends or allies? Yes, yeah, so um, to build on that, you have this uh, section in the book when you talk about old cases. 
and stripping wallpaper. And that old cases like this, it's about stripping wallpaper and you just don't know what problems you're going to find as you go down through, through yeah. the layers. Yeah. So this is a complex old case. It is, it is. And I mean, it does involve police corruption or apparent police corruption in the past. And, you know, again, I'm looking at this is the way policing used to be. This is, we used to expect that our police would be corrupt. Small-time corruption. But things like, you know, you walk into a, 20, 30 years ago, if you were a cop, and you, a beat cop, just a uniform cop, and you walked into a bar for a drink, you would get it for free. You walked into news agents, they just waved you away. You didn't pay for stuff. And the expectation was if they had some issue, some trouble, if they phoned up, you would come quicker. Um, but from that very small seed, bigger things can grow. Um, and you can end up with police officers being in the pockets of, of uh, corrupt business people, gangsters, um, organised crime. So it was looking at the potential for these things to happen. And in this book, we've got some police officers who've risen through the, uh, through the ranks um, quite rapidly. Um, uh, and people don't, not everybody thinks they did it cleanly. Um, either they've got dirt on somebody or they've got dirt on people or else they've just been helped by um, uh, corrupt, you know, by, by um, gangsters and, and such like. And so it's really interesting to me that all these... The potential is there. I'm not saying any of this stuff is happening in the real world. Um, it's happening somewhere. It might not be happening in Scotland or in Edinburgh. But the potential for this stuff to happen is definitely there. Um, and at the same time, the books are, you know, every book I write is basically a reimagining of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, we've all got that potential to do good and be good, but we've all got the potential within us to do terrible things. And, and it's great, you know, you've got Rebus, who at the beginning he's got this managed decline, he's kind of slowing down, but the pace of the book is picking up, and I guess Rebus picks up as he goes through the book, right, in terms of his pace. Well, you know, I mean, p policing, being a detective, is the only thing that keeps him going. It's the yeah. only thing that gets his motor running, that gets him out of bed in the morning. Um, and he's desperate to, to be, to remain a detective. I mean, he's now at a stage in his life, he's in his mid-60s in, in this book. Cafferty, the gangster who runs Edinburgh, is also in his mid-60s. These are two men of a certain age who are slowing down, who can't use their physical heft to intimidate the way they used to. Um, and they're looking around them at the world, bewildered by the changes that are taking place, the rapid changes. I love introducing Rebus to new technology. He just doesn't <laughs> understand WhatsApp and Snapchat and stuff, and he goes, what? Um, uh, even Twitter, he goes, why would you do that? Um, and, but also, they're, they're looking around at the world thinking, do we still make a difference? Yeah, and this is Do great, we still have a role to play in the world? There's this great exchange between him and the former head of the department, both retired, and they're both, they're both saying, you know, early on in the book, you know, we smell of old days and old ways, right, when the world's moved move so quickly. But Absolutely. They're still, but it's still relevant because they've got skills that maybe could still be relevant. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think that's the thing, is Rebus does have a set of skills, as it were, um, but even he's finding that harder because he used to operate by having snitches, by having people in bars that he would go and talk to and he would feed them information for the price of a drink. And now he goes to those bars and they've turned into Starbucks. Or they're, they're serving wine and tapas, you know. And the guys who used to provide them with information on the street are long dead. Yeah. And so that world is disappearing rapidly. And I think he's acknowledging now that the, the Siobhan Clarks of this world, college-educated, more liberal than him in their thinking, and techno-savvy, that is the future of policing. Um, and his way doesn't really work anymore. But he's still dogged, he's still persistent, and if you give him a case, as Siobhan does in this book, a, quite a small case as she thinks, um, he'll gnaw away at that until he gets some answers, yeah. even if it means climbing up two flights of stairs. And that's great. I mean, you bring in the, the relevance. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's suffering, he's struggling, so the real life comes through here. But uh, 
you know, as, as, as Siobhan is in this case, she's got to trust him, right? So we talked about trust at the beginning. There's this big trust. Hey, I'm going I'm to let you in. You're going to come close again. But, you know, Rebus himself, he seems challenged as to how much he can trust his old judgments, how he can play the game. And he's playing the game throughout to kind of manage and play off you know, Cafferty's back and then the, his, his nemesis who's in jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Cafferty is back in charge of Edinburgh. Bizarre, it's a kind of bizarre thing. I, I, wish, I, I wish you were a psychoanalyst in some ways. Because I need to deal with this at some point. You know, the apartment that Rebus lives in, the street he lives in, is the street I lived in when I was a young, naive student writing my first Rebus novel. So I basically was living in the the street of the good guy. The house I'm living in now is the house that Cafferty lived in until recently. (laughs) Um, So I've gone from being the good guy to the bad guy. And Cafferty, two books ago, moved into this penthouse apartment in this new development in Edinburgh. Guess where I'm moving next month? (laughs) I, I truly am. I'm moving into, I'm moving into Cafferty's penthouse next month. So I've, I've gone from being the goody to the baddie. How does that work? Why, does that, what does that say about me, that there's, there's possibly more of Cafferty in me than there is a Rebus? And there's not a lot of, of Rebus in me, I don't think. I mean, he was invented specifically as a defence mechanism because my very first book, The Flood, first published book, was based in my home village where I grew up. Um, Carden Den. I thought, I've disguised it. I've called it Cars Den. Nobody will know. <laughs> and the, the opening of that book, when Mary Miller was 10 years old and not yet a witch, my dad, I gave him the book. I was very excited when it was published. And he went, oh, Mary Miller, she lives over the back fence. <laughs> and, and everybody in that book, was, the main character was called Sandy. I had a good school friend called Sandy. He thought that was him. He said, well, have you made me fat? I'm not fat. Um, everybody in my hometown thought they could see themselves in that book. And they didn't like what I said about it. My aunt Jenny went ballistic. Because um, a girl was described as, having, as wearing underwear that wasn't quite clean. And um, <laughs> so I made a lot of enemies. And I thought, well, next book better be something very different. So Rebus was 40 years old. I was 25 when I wrote that first book. He'd left school at 15, 16, joined the army. No, I'd stuck around and gone to university. We'd grown up in the same village, but then our lives had split very drastically in our teens. And I thought, nobody can see me in him. And, um, and still, now, I, I don't think we're very alike. Uh, he is almost, I mean, I get, I'm going to keep referring to this, but he almost is my Mr. Hyde. Um, he gets to do all the kind of dark, he gets to cross the line in a way that I, I don't in, in my personal life. And Cafferty is his Mr. Hyde. That's what you're telling us, Ian. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who yeah, knows? yeah. So Everybody look. thinks crime writers could get away with murder. We, do, we really couldn't. I was at the, the mystery thing a couple of nights ago here. Tony Blackburn was being interviewed and there was a murder. A singer came on and she died. She was poisoned. And then we all had to guess who did it. And crime writers are useless at that. So you, so, so, I've, I've done so I've been you, loads of these and I never ever get it. Yeah, because there was a table with uh, all of the crime writers and a few uh, other guests right at the front. And that was a table that won. Okay? No, um, we didn't win. Well, we didn't win. We, we got it right. But in fact, the writers didn't really get it right. We, uh, the, one of the civilians at the table got it right. And she was a bit miffed that we were, we were ruled out because we were all professionals. She was the one who got it, and she's not a professional. <laughs> and crime writers don't. I mean, you know, there is this funny... People sometimes think that crime fiction must be retrofitted. You, almost like a crossword. You get the grid, you fill in the answers, then you invent the clues. But most crime writers don't work that way. I work very linearly and forward. And when I start writing a book like this one, you've got a body in a car, it's a private detective. Why did he die? Who killed him? I don't know. Well, that was one of my, my thoughts. We'll come back to Edinburgh in a second and we'll take a, a little digression into housing and letters and uh, what we find in our homes. Um, but before we go there, I have this image of, of a kind of a pseudo 
police setup with a whiteboard and then photographs and lines, and you've got it all mapped out at the start, and you kind of know how it's all going to come together? No. The first draft of the book is, is me as the detective or the detectives working out what the heck is going on. I don't know what's going on. Um, I, you know, sometimes in a book, The Hanging Garden, it was the second draft before I worked out who the killer was. There was just these blank spaces in the first draft saying, I'll, fi- I'll work this out later on, you know. Um, and then once you, and usually the story tells you, well, actually, so two-thirds of the way through the first draft, usually I go, ah, it must be you because of X, Y, and Z. And then I can go back and fill in the gaps um, so that it was always meant to be thus. But usually, you know, the first draft, I'm finding out who the potential suspects are, how people are connected to each other. You know, um, would these corrupt police officers have done X, Y, or Z? Would they be connected to this guy or that guy? Um, or could she play a role? Was she in the room that night? Was she there that night when this happened? Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm asking questions. And uh, that's really... Uh, if, there was one time, a long time ago, I, wrote, I, I planned a novel, I plotted a novel. It wasn't a rebus novel, but I plotted it out in such great detail that when I sat down to write it, I didn't feel the need to write the book. I knew what was going to happen in this book from page one to page 300. So why did I... I didn't need to write it. I write the books to find out what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I reckon if I don't know at the start who did it, probably you don't know either. <laughs> So let's just go back to Edinburgh and, and housing and this uh, parallel that's run through uh, Cafferty's moves and your moves. So big Victorian house you're living in now, but not for much longer. No, not for much longer, man. We're downsizing. We're doing that dreaded thing. I've been upsizing all my life, and suddenly to downsize is kind of cathartic, um, but horrifying at the same time. Um, spent months shredding old bank statements from the 90s, you know, stuff that I, that's just sitting there in boxes that we don't need anymore. Um, my archive, manuscripts and correspondence and stuff has gone to the National Library of Scotland, so that's great. That was 19 boxes I could, I could get rid of. A lot of um, the Oxfam shops of Edinburgh, the charity shops of Edinburgh, have got a lot of books, a lot of CDs, a lot of my LPs um, that I just don't have room for in this, this smaller apartment. But um, the, the most interesting thing for me was going through the, 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 the archive, because I wasn't sure I wanted the National Library of Scotland to get everything. He thought there could be poetry in there from my teenage years, <laughs> song lyrics from when I was 15, you know. Um, so I better get rid of that or at least keep it to myself to go in my coffin with me. They're not getting my diaries, for example. I kept a diary from the age of 12 till I was 32. They're not getting those. Um, uh, although if you're interested, there, is a, there was a radio program on the BBC last year called My Teenage Diaries. And I did pluck some extracts from them and was interviewed, and it is on the BBC iPlayer and also on the, the inter, uh, elsewhere on the internet. And that was quite an interesting experience. Um, but um, the correspondence w- was fascinating to me because we, when, when I first got married, we moved to London for four years, then we moved to France for six years, pre-internet. And so I corresponded with a lot of authors. And um, I was, I, I'd, uh, I'd forgotten how many letters I had from someone like Ian Banks, for example, yeah. fellow Scottish author. Before I'd ever met him, we had a correspondence. We used to write to each other. Um, and I found all those letters, and of course he's sadly no longer with us. And then I was finding letters from P.D. James, Ruth Rendell, William McIlvaney, Philip Kerr, um, I'm going to forget who else. And they're all gone. Michael Dibden was another one. They're, none of them are around anymore. Um, and there were two things that made me very sad, made me very poignant, and a lot of them had died young. I mean, Philip Kerr... Ian Banks, they were 61, 62 when he died. Um, but also my generation is possibly the last generation of writers who will have an archive like that. Who, who writes letters these days? 
I mean, nobody does. You do tweets and emails if you're lucky. Even the faxes, I was finding faxes from old-fashioned shiny paper fax machines, and they were just blank sheets of paper because the ink on them had, had faded to nothing. Um, and discs, computer discs, in fact, I just found these a few days ago from my old Amstrad, little solid chunky floppy disks from an Amstrad. I mean, how anybody's going to be able to read those, I've no idea. Um, and will the information on them be corrupt, corrupted? You know, there's copies of letters. So the letters I sent to all these dead people are on these floppy disks, and they may have been corrupted, and we'll never know what I was saying to them. We'll only have their responses. So it was kind of, so that's all gone to the National Library of Scotland, and, and eventually I mean, there is an archivist who's going to be um, given the job of going through it all and trying to make sense of it. Um, but it was nice, because when I went in there to, to see where it would go, they said it's going to go here next to William McIlvany's archive, which they just got, and Muriel Sparks' archive, which they got recently, and there's Robert Louis Stevenson's archive over there, and it was just really exciting to me, because when the Rebus novel started to be published, I was studying literature. You know, I was going to be a professor of literature. That was, that was what I thought I was going to do. Um, and the first novel was meant to be this literary novel that just happened to have a detective in it. And so when I went to the bookshop, uh, the local Edinburgh bookshop, to look for it, it wasn't in the literature section. It wasn't in the Scottish... Where, where is it? And there it was in the crime section. I was horrified. <laughs> horrified. I didn't read crime fiction. I'm, the on, I'm still the only crime writer I know who didn't read and was a fan of crime fiction before they started writing it. Well, we're glad that you uh, were misplaced in that bookshop all those years. <laughs> I would take it out and put it in the literature section. <laughs> Go back next day and it was back in crime again, next to Ruth Rendell, you know. So that's why I started write, reading Ruth Rendell, because she was next to me alphabetically in the crime section. <laughs> so, um, so aside from all the changes that are going on with you personally in Edinburgh, and I guess this is kind of staying relevant, right? Staying with what is current and people moving from big houses to... You know, empty nester now, mm. going to an apartment. Um, he's staying relevant in this book, right? You're staying relevant with conversations around Brexit. We're not going to ruin the morning by dividing the, the political landscape as to who's pro or con, but there's some interesting, interesting perspectives as to how society will change. And you want to talk to us about the... the well, there's one this? sentence in the book, Christopher. There's one sentence, on, really. Hey, about, yeah, about, there's one small conversation between two gangsters, Cafferty and an Irish gangster, about Brexit, and the Irish gangster is very excited by it because he said it's going to be chaos, which means there's cash to be made, there's money to be made from this. He said, and, and Caffer, he said, really, are you sure? He goes, yes, because we are disaster capitalists. That's what gangsters are. They're looking for, you know, if suddenly the, the border between Ireland in the, it becomes a hard border, suddenly smuggling becomes a potential source of income again that it hasn't been for years. Um, you know, if it's a hard border between the UK and elsewhere in Europe, then suddenly smuggling, if there's big tariffs, yeah. suddenly smuggling could become a big business again. Um, so they're looking, at the, they're looking for a chance, they're looking for an opportunity. And they see money to be made from, from the chaos that might ensue. That's as much as I say about Brexit. Um, yeah, I know, we'll leave it there. We're not yeah, going to get into the political... Uh, uh, all I'm saying is it's, it's, it's a bounty for gangsters, that's all I'm saying. And hopefully, well, yeah, a bounty for writing as well. So let's, let's just talk about what, what's, what's forthcoming, because you've got a lot on your hands with getting ready for this, for this uh, uh, the archives. Is that, is that taking priority? Because that, you could suggest that actually that body of work and getting ready for the archive could be more important than sitting down this year and writing another book. Oh, I think if you told my publisher that, they would say probably not. I've slowed down. I mean, I've gone from writing two books a year when I was skint and needed the money uh, to writing a book every two years now. So this year is my fallow year, and I'm allowed not to write a book this year. But I think once we, get the, once we are moved into the new place, 
I've got, I've got the inkling of an idea for a story that feels to me like a novel and maybe even a rebus novel. So maybe the second half of this year I'll get started. But I, I did a stage play last year and the producer is very keen that I do another stage play, rebus stage play, rebus and Caffery. On yes, stage for the first time. First time yeah. yeah, and I was really, I, I was intrigued because yeah, famously I've, I've said all, all along that I don't watch the TV because I didn't want actors to get inside my head. But for some reason that didn't seem to bother me with the stage play. And I was very keen to see Rebus in three dimensions on stage, basically knocking heads with Cafferty psychologically, if not physically, and in fact both, as it turns out. And it's had a great run for the UK. It, yeah, I mean, it did a, an original run. I mean, there were, we got, well... <laughs> um, the casting was interesting because the producer said to me, he said, we've got a really great actor, he's from Coronation Street. And I went, okay, who is it? He went, it's Charlie Lawson. I said, isn't he Irish? He went, yeah. <laughs> uh, he plays Big Jim McDonald in the Coronation Street. I went, well, he said, no, don't worry, he can do a Scottish accent. He knows Scotland really well. Okay. Um, well, I, didn't, I couldn't go to any rehearsals um, because I was busy elsewhere. So I saw the first, the opening night in Birmingham uh, in England and I was on tenterhooks, and he, oh, thank God his accent is okay, you know, um, his accent was fine. But then we did the opening night in Edinburgh, and he had a stroke on stage. Oh, my God. He had a, a mini-stroke, uh, and um, had to be carried off two-thirds of the way through the play. So the understudy came in, and three days later, he was back. Um, extraordinary. He came back, and the show must go on, and he completed his run. But then other theatres had come forward and said, we would like this play as well, please. And he had to go back and do more Coronation Street. So they brought in a new actor, Ron Donaghy, who plays Rebus on radio. If you ever hear the BBC radio adaptations, the dramas, it's Ron Donaghy doing Rebus. Um, and so I went and saw it again last week in Newcastle with Ron Donaghy playing Rebus. And it was great again. It was really good. Different. He's different. Um, it's a bit more pathos, I think, to, to Ron's interpretation. But the actor playing Cafferty basically steals the show. Um, John Stahl, who's been in Game of Thrones. He's got that. My wife was with me that opening night in Edinburgh and she grabbed my arm when Cafferty came on stage because he's got that nice mix of charisma and menace. You know, he's charming, but he's, but he's also dangerous. And, and John Stahl just caught that perfectly. Um, and Cathy Tyson, who a lot of you will know from screen, uh, plays Siobhan Clark. Um, she was in Mona Lisa, amongst many other film and TV roles. Um, and it's basically a three-hander. Um, and it is, again, to do with the past and crimes of the past being covered up and Rebus's complicity in those crimes um, being damaging to his relationship with Siobhan Clark. So, yeah, but it's a kind of slightly parallel universe. We decided early on, no dog. Uh, Rebus in the last couple of books has a dog, uh, Brillo. Brillo yeah. yeah, in fact, three books ago, because I introduced Brillo, the dog, in Even Dogs in the Wild. Hey, Even Dogs in the Wild, let's have a dog in it. Um, then I started writing the follow-up book to it, um, Rather Be the Devil, and my wife said, oh, how's Brillo getting on? I went, oh, I forgot he's got a dog. And <laughs> had to go back. And, and, you know, it's a truism. In crime fiction, you can kill as many human beings as you like, but you can't get rid of a pet. <laughs> so, so Brillo, and, and in this book, when I, you know, the first person who reads the, my books is my wife, and print off the manuscript, and she goes through it with a pencil, and it's always a nerve-wracking moment of judgment because my publisher hasn't seen it, my agent hasn't seen it, nobody's seen it. And it came back, and all the marginalia was stuff like, why is he not taking Brillo for a walk? It's been, it's been too long. and he, No, he can't stay out all night. What's Brillo going to do? Um, so she keeps me right on Brillo. And I'm going, I wish I'd never introduced that dog. Uh, yeah, dogs and illnesses. Yeah, dogs and illnesses. Comes to us all. So, look, what we're going to do, um, we have lots of people with hands up in the audience earlier as to where they come from. I think we have more questions than 15 minutes would normally warrant. So we're going to break a little early for questions. And I'm going to put uh, my colleagues in the room on notice for the 
uh, for the room staff. Um, how we're going to set this up whilst they uh, get mics is we want you guys to be really clear. Um, we'll try and get around as many people as possible. Hold the mic really close. Kate A.D., the famous news reporter, says... <laughs> like you're licking a lollipop, okay? So nice and close, and please, we know we want to have lots of accolades for you and say thank you. Let's have a great question, and then hand the mic back so we can get to the next person, we can get as many questions done as possible. Is that okay? Okay, so, hands up, questions for Ian. Gentleman on the left over here, and then we'll come to, we'll, we'll start with this lady here, then we'll get to that gentleman. Okay, we have a mic. Thank you. Yep, yeah, go ahead. Hello, Ian. Um, what was the title of that record that was um, shortlisted from <laughs> the store in Kilmarnock? <laughs> it wasn't Kilmarnock, it was Kirkcaldy. Oh, Kirkcaldy. Yeah, yeah, Kirkcaldy where I grew up. Uh, I, I'll tell you, it was Bob Dylan live at Budo Can. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't afford it. The long arm of the law. Um, you've been very disparaging in the past about television and television producers and what happens to books. And you say you hardly watch television. Is that still true in the age of uh, Netflix and streaming services and so on? And or have you seen anything that enables you to make a judgment call? Um, thanks. I mean, I'm disparaging... You know, I mean, TV doesn't always do um, adaptation well. Sometimes the best cop shows, specifically, are ones that are written for the screen. Um, things like Cracker, uh, Prime Suspect, um, The Sweeney. I mean, whatever. They were all written for the screen. They weren't adapted. And adaptation can be difficult. And with Rebus specifically... When you took it from two hours down to one hour per book, that's a 45-page script from a 400-page novel. So they dumped everything except the title and made up a story that would fit that format. Fair play to them, that's what you do. But I didn't think that was doing justice to the themes, to the textures, nuances, to the characterization or to the setting. It wasn't given enough time to breathe. So long-form television, thank goodness, has come along and... TV producers in the UK have decided it's okay to do 8 hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. Um, so there is a Rebus adaptation um, potentially coming next year. A screenwriter has written um, two hours of what he sees as being a six or eight hour Rebus. Taking plots from a couple of books and, and blending them. Um, and he's a great screenwriter. He's, he's done TV, he's done, well he's not done TV, he's done film and he's done drama, stage drama. Um, and I trust him, and I've read the two-hour, uh, um, the first, the, the pilot, and it, I think it's great. Um, so I'm not as disparaging as I once was, perhaps. And you know, I think there is some great TV out there. Um, uh, my favourite—I don't know if whether you get it in, in Dubai or the UAE or not—Engrenage uh, Spiral, which is a French show. And if anybody's seen Spiral, or you can go and Google it. Look for the actor who plays Gilou. Because the actor who plays Gilou, I think, would make a great rebus. I've just got to kidnap him, <laughs> bring him back to Scotland, and teach him Scots. <laughs> and once I've done that, I think we can introduce him as, as rebus in, in, a, in a, an episode. Yeah. Very good. Th this lady here, then, question. Hands up for the next one. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, when rebus pops his clogs, would you be able to write... Um, as, or would it be difficult to write as a bloke um, with a female character, would that be difficult? Um, possibly not as difficult as I once thought. If you go back to the early Rebus novels, there aren't strong women, uh, female characterizations in the books. I didn't feel confident writing from a woman's perspective, especially a woman police officer. 
And I introduced Siobhan because I needed someone to be asking Rebus the question. It was like any Watson role, Watson and Holmes, to be asking Rebus the questions or trying, the, the reader wants answered. Um, and then she took on a life of her own and, and um, female police officers and women crime writers would say to me, I, I like her, she seems realistic to me. So I got more confident. And I think I could, I, I would love to write a Siobhan Clark book, but I've, I need to find a story that feels like her story. And at the beginning of this, this felt like it was going to be Siobhan Clark's story because it's a, it's a murder, it's going to be investigated by a, a police officer, she's a police officer, therefore this is her story. But then when I got the idea, no, wait a minute, but 10 years ago it was a missing persons case and 10 years ago Rebus was still on the force, then it became a Rebus story or a Rebus and Siobhan Clark story. And then I found a role for Ma Malcolm Fox to play as well. But I can see it happening. The thing is that Rebus will outlast me potentially. Um, you talk about him dying, but no, no fictional character dies. We're still getting Sherlock Holmes stories after all these years. We're still getting Morse, Inspector Morse stories, although the author is long dead. Um, Hercule Poirot keeps popping up from time to time. So after I'm gone, somebody might come along and say, I've got a great idea for a Rebus book. And I'm sure my son, who will be my literary executor, will go... <laughs> <laughs> Give me the cash. <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> you know, he won't be shy about that. Um, so, so um, you know, it's bizarre, isn't it? I think Rebus will outlast me, I think, potentially, which is really interesting. I don't have a, a stop in mind. I don't have a kind of end game in mind. When I start writing a book, I'm never sure if Rebus will be alive or dead at the end. The story will tell me that as I go on. And potentially every book could be the final book. You're keeping us on tenterhooks. That's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's I, I, I'm, I'm keeping me on tenterhooks because I really, honestly don't know. And if you say to me, what's your next book going to be about? I've got this tiny, tiny, tiny inkling, but I don't know whether Rebus will be alive or dead at the end, or even potentially at the moment if it is a Rebus novel. It feels to me like it is going to be his book, but let's wait and see.